Welcome back, world. You are listening to episode three of the Black and White Theology Podcast. Please pray for Tyler's salvation. How are you doing, Tyler? Listen, man, I'm good, baby. All right. Life's good. I'm happy. Dude, the the world has been depressed the last week. It's been a rough week for the world. Do you know why? Man, we we had a rough go last time with FaceTime. Sometimes I, I turned into, like, the robot voice that was that was exciting <laughs> but we're trying skype today hoping it works better not off to a good start well do you know why the, do you know why the world was depressed all week last week because of school shootings and volcanoes exploding in hawaii and no no like no 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 because we told them we'd have a podcast for them every other week and we did not oh. we are off a week because of you well you're a pathological liar that's not a lie. I no. I I stand on the truth, but we're no, sorry. No. So we are back. We're back. Well, you also you also believe truth is relative. So no, I don't. But I do know. I do believe that our last episode was almost two hours long. That will not happen today. And so everybody needed the extra week to actually listen to it. Twice. So how about this? Our first episode, 211 downloads. Pretty good. Wow. We're getting close that to world status there of reaching the world audience. But, that's a bit of a stretch. But well, you know, it's a start. But here's, the, here's the other news. Episode two, only 101 downloads. So you know what that oh. means, right? They found you out you were a heretic. 110 people. Thought this was a bunch of crap, and <laughs> they turned it off. <laughs> Possibly, <laughs> there may be some truth to that. Oh man! All right, well we have a mailbag. I'm gonna play a drop, and Tyler, I don't want you to talk. Can you do that? <laughs> Mail time. We did it. All right. All right, you can send us mail in two ways, and we would love to get mail from you and interact on the air with you. One way you can do that is our email, bwtheology at gmail.com. The other way you can do it is on Twitter, at bwtheology. We will follow you back, and then you can send us messages. We have a ton of mail! Here we a go. Ton a ton. Let's. Uh, oh. Should we give a preview of what we're going to talk about later, in case people get bored with the mail, they can fast forward or hang in there. What are we going to? What's our our main topic today, Tyler? Fill us in. No, let's not do that. Keep them waiting. Wow. Well, let me tell you, it's really good. So if you get bored, hang in there. Okay. If you get bored, you don't love God. Okay. We could talk about that in another episode. All right, we have a lot of email. So this is from Alan. What? Why are you so loud? Why? Are you screaming today? Yeah. Are you okay? Are you okay? Uh, my daughter slept through the night last night. She's 10 months old. Uh-huh. So I have, it's the first time I haven't been in a coma in 10 months. Bless her heart. Yes. Bless me. Bless my yeah. heart. 
All right. Good job on the podcast from Alan. You guys really mesh together. Thanks, Alan. I'm enjoying I'm enjoying the combo of race and theology. It's just good there's a safe space to ask stuff that I'm not sure is from a blind spot. All right, here we go. This is going to probably mm-hmm. be a future episode, but we could get a couple of thoughts quick. All right, y'all mm-hmm. may have talked about this before on the Chopping It Up podcast, but a couple of weeks ago was 420 and the push to legalize mar- <laughs> marijuana. Penalties for marijuana are across the board racist and kind of built in right now. Do y'all support legalizing marijuana to rectify or just stop this? Or as pastors, is legalizing drugs something you couldn't support? For what it's worth, I used to get in way worse trouble from drinking than I ever did smoking pot. The laws seem screwed up that way. Tyler. Yeah. What do you think? Um, I've heard that argument before. Um, I'm kind of indifferent. Um, if, if they legalize marijuana and... And, uh, and this may be a hot take uh, for a uh, one, a Christian, and two, a pastor. But if they legalize marijuana and people want to use it recreationally and it's against the law, I could see it being similar to um, having a couple drinks. You know what I'm saying? Um, as long as you're not using it to abuse and to you know, using it irresponsibly, I could see it that way, but I'm also not going to go advocate and push for marijuana to be um, legalized, if that makes any sense. So I guess that's part of the gray. You know, I'm I'm really indifferent about it. If they, I mean, I live in Detroit, so marijuana might as well be legal in Detroit. Mm-hmm. I see people walking down the street, literally rolling blunts and smoking as they walk and drive. And I don't think these are card-carrying members uh, with cataracts. For medical marijuana mm-hmm. so i i don't see why marijuana is illegal honestly um so if they legalize it and believers want to use it recreationally or for medical purposes as long as it's responsible um i mean i see his point i mean i know marijuana is not legal but i know dudes who get absolutely hammered and get behind the wheel and, and have killed people or got duis and all that stuff mm-hmm. so right yeah it's a good question, and I think what he's getting at with the racism part of it, you can, if you watch 13th, like we talked about, but a lot of them, oh my goodness. the mass incarceration of people of color that have used marijuana, yeah. and so the idea being marijuana is widely you know, used of, along all socioeconomic classes and races, Absolutely. and yet uh, black and brown people are thrown in jail for it for long periods of time for using it or dealing it. And so there's often the argument is that that's a racist law to have on the books. And so if you got rid of the law, then these people of color, you know, wouldn't be getting thrown into jail. And there's there's extreme legitimacy to that. Um, Absolutely. I think, yeah, it's a tough question in a way. I mean, I, I think what Tyler said has a lot of validity to it. I think that you know i live in lansing and i grew up in the suburbs of troy ohio and marijuana was done secretly you know it was done certainly at the parties with the popular white kids um but it was not normal whatsoever whereas like in the city 
Lansing is like little pockets of Detroit, just not as widespread. But in my neighborhood, right. you smell marijuana all the time. My oh yeah, my oh, yeah, four-year-old daughter was walking into ho- the house the other day, and she said, "Oh, it smells good. So someone's having a campfire," is what she said. <laughs> and it was it was marijuana from one of my neighbors, and uh, she then said. No, that's not a campfire. That's a skunk. That smells. <laughs> I thought that was sort of funny. But it is kind of weird funny. to raise a four-year-old and, you know, little kids around all this marijuana. It's just it's weird. Um, for what it's worth, I wrote an article. I don't know when it was. It was maybe a year ago. And I only mention it because it is the most read article I've ever written on my blog. I've been blogging for probably five or six years. And this one by oh. far by far is the most highly read article. And the title is, I would like my friends who smoke marijuana to read this. The heart of it came from playing basketball at the park down the street from my house, which is in a very poor part of our city. And the guys that smoke the marijuana there, marijuana is like their only thing they have going for them in certain ways. What I mean is they're either not working or they're working you know, really low paying jobs and they have kids and they're some of them. Um, they're not taking care of their kids because they're, they literally are spending all their money on marijuana. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what the article was about is like when like marijuana brings poverty and when you're in yeah. poverty, marijuana keeps you in poverty. And so yeah. I, there's something to that. Now, I don't think marijuana should send someone to jail that doesn't help anybody it doesn't help them it doesn't help their family but i do think it's like in a way it's like self-medicating i mean i think sure you could use it recreationally if you are responsible with it like you said but a lot of folks already they're using it like like the alcoholic uses alcohol right they're just yeah it's like their crutch for life and so i would kind of wonder and this would never happen because our legal system isn't smart enough to do this but if instead there could be other intervention like counseling or not not just yeah. counseling but just why are you dependent on marijuana so much you know and it's crippling your family like kids are just being completely neglected because who cares about raising your kid if you can just get high all the time who cares if you have a job yeah. or not if you can get high all the time so that's kind of the other side of it and so um yeah it's a it's a, it's me, a all, tough question all these things are all these things are intertwined yeah. Um, mental mental illness, depression. Yeah. Uh, substance abuse, poverty. Uh, all these things in, intertwine. Yeah. People are, are people are often depressed and don't have the emotional language or emotional maturity to express and articulate how they feel in the situation they're in. So they just get hot. You know what I'm saying? Um, or they drink. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, yeah, it's just intertwined and, and mental illness and uh, mental illness, but and but more so emotional, uh, emotional issues like depression, anxiety. These things are, are not talked about uh, amongst the urban poor. So people just medicate. They go get high. They drink. They spend three hundred dollars on their hair. That right. gives them some sense of uh, worth. They go spend. Four hundred dollars on some sneakers or some true religion jeans or a Gucci belt because that gives them identity. That gives them worth. Um, so yeah, it's just it's it's all these things are connected. 
uh, low education, no education, being uh, unemployed and being grossly underemployed and drug use and criminality. All these things are intertwined. Uh, so, yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's a mess. My, my thing is how, how these laws, um, drug laws and, and, and the enforcement of these laws disproportionately affect men of color. Yeah. Um, it's just our, our prison system is f- filled with men who got pulled over for a nickel bag, you know, and, and all these different things. And now you can't now you can't get a job. You got a strike on your record. Um, so if, if, if you make marijuana legal, you're going to you're going to have to uh, let a whole bunch of I, I, me. I would say a lot of people who got one or two strike or one strike, maybe or, on a really petty, small drug charge. I think they need to get exonerated of that, um, you know. Mm-hmm. But that's just one 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 man's opinion. Yeah, it's good. So, I don't know. So, don't know. so, these people, so these people can get employment, right? I don't know why I said that was going to be a future episode topic. I, I think we're unable uh, as pastors to uh, to do that. So, Alan, I'm not going to read your next question because <laughs> if I if I even read it, Tyler and I will talk about it for t- the next 25 minutes. So we'll save it. For a future episode when we don't have as much mail. So our next piece of mail comes from Mark. You've hey, got mail. Hey, Tyler and Noah, loving the show. Related to the language Katie asked about, like binding the enemy, anointing in the blood, etc. From last episode. I'd like to hear your thoughts on Matthew 16, 18 through 19. Mm-hmm. And 18... 18 through 19. Let me read those real quick. 16, 18 through 19 says, in the 1984 NIV, because it's the free Bibles we have at our church, (laughs) and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And 18, 18 to 19, which say, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. Uh, these are back to Mark's email. These are passages where Jesus is talking about binding things on earth, uh, on mm-hmm. he- on heaven and earth. Mm-hmm. Who is that authority promised to? What other teachings do we need in that context? What cultural hermeneutics do we need? So, mm-hmm. uh, quick couple quick thoughts on that for me. Uh, the to me the eighteen. Uh, the chapter 18 one is a bit clearer because I, I, I often hear this section. Um, let's see. Is that the same? Uh, yeah. So this section is talking about when a brother sins against you. You just go back to verse 15. Yep. Uh, just uh-huh. between the two of you, if you listen, you've won, him o- you've won him over. But if you will not listen, take one or two others along. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen, then you would treat him like you would a pagan or a tax collector. And so... It's like the model of how to confront someone in their sin, and mm-hmm. the final result being you you have that person leave the church. It doesn't mean you don't love them anymore, but you treat them like an unbeliever. You kind of have to re-evangelize that person. And so mm-hmm. 
there, that's some authority that you're putting on there. And and, and it right. takes, there's church authority where there's two or more together. Uh, if you agree on anything, it will be done for you. You know, where there's, here, oh, verse 20, that's the one I was trying to get to. For where two or three mm-hmm. come together in my name, there I am with them. That verse, and I'm not trying to blast anybody that uses this verse and how I would think. Please do. How I would say very much out of context. <laughs> But you hear yeah. that verse a lot by really well-meaning people, like like denominational leaders. I mean, it, it seems like everybody thinks that verse just means where there's two or three of us gathered, uh, Jesus is with us. That's theologically incorrect on many, many uh, levels. But first and foremost, it's talking about when you're doing church discipline and yes. when as a church authority you come up with a decision then Jesus is there with you. Like he's with you in that decision. And what you've just bound or loosed, which means to untie, uh, what you bound or untied, Jesus is with you in that he's behind you. If you think about, if that verse really meant, and Mark, I know this really wasn't your question, but it's kind of one of my soapbox verses. If it really meant where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Hello, Jesus isn't with you when you're alone. I mean, I shouldn't say hello in a sarcastic way. I'm sorry. I gotta calm right. down. But he's he's the Holy Spirit's with you when you're alone. You don't need to be with another person for him to be with mm-hmm. you. This is talking about church discipline, and there's a certain type right. of authority of binding and loosing uh, that goes along with that. I would re- reverse back to chapter 16 and say you have a very specific context where Jesus is talking to Peter, and he's giving him authority in the church. There was a unique authority Peter had as apostle within the church. He wrote books of the Bible. I do not have that type of authority. And so uh, I I think that's a way where we have to take those contextual elements into play when we apply those to our lives today. Yeah, I mean, I agree 100%. Um, the context of both of these uh, verses is church governance and church um, leadership. Now I'm saying? Um, verse 18, um, chapter 18, um, that's the context. It's, like you said, he's talking about church discipline. He's talking about if there's a brother and you, and you need a brother or sister, and they are in sin and they need to be are confronted on sin. First, you bring it, you bring the sin to them. Secondly, you bring another witness. Third, you bring it before the church. Um, and verse 18 is not talking about, like I've used, I've heard this context as well about binding and loosing demons and binding and loosing spirits and uh, binding Satan and loosing blessings. That's not the context of this. The context is, um, like you said, the decision that is made, you're making that decision um, in the authority of Jesus Christ as his under shepherds. So, yeah, I agree 100 um, percent. Those are especially verse two. I've heard that a, a zillion times in small churches or, or where there's a small gathering of people oh, or two or three are gathered. Right. He's there in a mess. That that's no, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that, like you said, he's with this decision that you made, because um, to a much lesser degree, we've been given keys to the kingdom as uh, those who are uh, his under shepherds, as those who shepherd the flock of God. Um, there are very difficult decisions that we have to make um, in leading God's people and calling people to repentance. Um, we, recently, our church, we had to remove a person from staff. That was mm-hmm. a difficult decision. Heck and yeah, the elders of yeah. the, 
Yeah, and elders of the church, myself, Dan Bossman, we also uh, we also are working with our transitional elders um, and, and other uh, pastors who speak into our, our, our church situation uh, since we are a new church plant. But, you know, this is saying, Jesus is saying, yes, I'm with you as you lead. I'm with you uh, as you make decisions um, led by the Spirit of God. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. All right, Mark, thanks for the question. You also had a second question. I'm going to save that for a week where we have less mail. In fact, anyone listening, don't send us any more mail. We, we need next episode to get caught up on mail. So uh, this next one is from Pete Filippiak. He is my brother. He also thinks he's very funny. He's really not. He starts with, Dear Pastor Tyler, and Pastor Buttface. I mean Noah. Very mature. Piece. Honest mistake. Honest mistake. First off, I'm loving the podcast. Da 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 da. Here are some questions. We'll do your first question here. Whether a person is white or a minority, what should a good set of goals look like? What should a person who lives in America? feels that something is wrong and wants to do something about it, hope to accomplish. Also, what would a list of goals look like for our society? So essentially, I think he's asking, what's a good set of goals look like for someone in America that feels like racism is wrong and they want to do something about it? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this may be beating a dead horse or, or this may just be kind of saying the same thing I say ad nauseum. Um, but these, a change happens in relationships. Um, we can't, you can't, it's not just about you know, getting involved in the cause and getting involved in a, uh, march or a hashtag. It's like you, you really can change and affect people's lives, uh, in proximity. So, and, and none of us are going to be the next Dr. Martin Luther King. You know what I'm saying? None of us are going to, well, I'm not going to say that so emphatically, but it's likelihood none of us are going to start this movement that's going to change legislation across the country. But if you are in relationship with people of color, people who are in um, impoverished situations, people who are, um, you know, disenfranchised, you can help a lot just by affecting three, four people's lives. Um, so I, I would I would say start there. I would say also, um, you know, learning history, learning how we how we got to where we are. But yeah, the main thing is just you know being in close relationship and close proximity with with um, with people who are uh, victims of disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, who would you add to that? Well, I mean, some practical things. I think if you're white, like my brother is, obviously. I mean, one thing you can... What? Yep, believe it or not. One thing you can do is... uh, This was said at the Kynos conference we went to a couple years ago. But if you're able to... And I'm not advocating you switch your church if you're a member of a church and you've been there a long time. I think church community is really important and you you can bring about change within your white church. But... If you're in a spot where maybe you just moved to town or for whatever reason you don't have a home church and you're white, just start attending a black church or start attending a Hispanic church. And 
that's that's a huge and become a member like make that your church that's a huge way to create multi-ethnic churches and to sit under people of color who are in power and to learn from them and and so that can be if you're able to do that 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 can be something that's really huge the learning piece is huge i think we often want to fix racism but we don't even know what it is and that's that can be really dangerous i equate it to trying to fly a 747 uh you wouldn't just full of people also you know full of people you wouldn't just get in the cockpit and say oh we got to get from new york to la let's get going this is important uh you need to go to flight school you need to study mechanics of a plane you need to learn how the plane is made and you need to learn how to fix the plane before you ever should take off because there's just so much damage that can be done and hurt that can be caused with good intentions so here in michigan there's a three-day training it's called understanding racism by a group congregations organizing for racial reconciliation and it's out of grand rapids we brought them to lansing and now we're doing uh our next one in lansing is october 11th to 13th and they do them in grand rapids like four times a year it's three days it's all day it'll change your life i mean you have to but and it's for people of color and for white folks um i would recommend finding something like that in your community and if you don't have anything like that just you could come to Michigan for those three days. And honestly, it's the best thing I've ever gone to. I've gone to conferences around the country and this one out of Grand Rapids for three days is the very best thing. If you don't have time or you just, you don't have anything like that, a book, if you're white, I just read the book, uh, white awake by Daniel Hill. And it's a, it'll give you everything you need to have a good history. Um, of what's going on and, and, and those sorts of things and some practical steps as well uh one thing i think um tyler mentioned this a little bit as in and maybe you could correct me on this tyler what you think about like community organizing because i think yeah there's not going to be another dr king but i do think community organizing is really powerful and if you can find a community organizing group that certainly it can get dicey sometimes um and we can we can talk about that again later, but community organizing to actually lobby against unjust laws, uh, man, that that's yeah. that is how laws change, and it comes with a lot of sacrifice. Um, so that's another thing that you can do is figure out who's doing community organizing in your in your area as far as um, yeah racial justice issues go and and attend start attending their meetings and and see how you can get involved on the yeah. ground yeah yeah I, I i would agree with that 100 percent. one of the things um i often get you know phone calls and emails about people wanting to come and volunteer and do mission trips and do things of that nature in detroit and for the most part i say no Unless there's unless we have an established relationship, um, because I've seen I've seen uh, well-intended, uh, very sincere uh, white brothers and sisters come and do more harm than good because they're not committed to long-term sustainable partnership. So if you if you want to um, really affect uh, disenfranchised uh, pop people who are in poverty, 
it can't be something that you do on the weekend. Uh, it can't be something that you volunteer and do once or twice. You have to be committed to time, energy, like you said. It may be on a civic level. It may be, um, it may be supported financially, but it, it's not something that you can do uh, on a weekend on a whim. It has to be something that you're uh, committed to long time because, I mean, these are issues that go back three, 350 years. Mm-hmm. Um, poverty, you know, you know, overall, wholesale, uh, painting with somewhat of a broad brush, but I believe it's a true statement. Black people have always been uh, educated poorly in this country. Went from not being educated at all to very deficient education compared to uh, our white brothers and sisters. So that's not going to be, so that affects poverty. That affects um, all all the different ripples that that are attached to that. So you have to be really saying, okay, I want to be in this thing long term um, to see change. Like I said, that's something you can do on a weekend. Right. And I'll finish my thought with this, with community organizing. I mean, I think, Tyler, what you're talking about is community engagement and involvement in ministry. And I, I want to be clear that I'm bringing up things where, first of all, when you do any kind of community organizing, and this is where it can get a little dicey as an evangelical Christian, and I think you're going to be doing it with people that, you do not agree theologically on everything, but I'm talking about, um, you know, Sean King is one example. He's the guy from the New York post. I don't believe he's a a believer, a Christian, but you could look up his name and he's like boycotting things and, you know, picketing Mm -hmm. things. And here's send these letters into your congressmen, those sorts of things. Um, a Christian organization called sojourners is another one. And again, I promise you, you won't agree with everything uh, that they're doing theologically or whatever it might be. But when it comes to some of these community organizing issues as, as far as how to bring about social political change, um, that just comes with the territory. There's a group in Lansing yeah. called Action of Greater Lansing, and it's a faith-based organization, but it's all faiths, right? It's Islam and all kinds <laughs> of things like this. But at the same time, they're the ones who are advocating for, you know, the rights of immigrants or they're advocating for um, community policing, you know, those sorts of things. Black Lives Matter is another one where, you know, I was on the Black Lives Matter bandwagon for a long time. And then some of the things that were being done, like under the name Black Lives Matter, I was like, man, I don't I don't like that part of it. And so as a pastor, it was tough for me because. You know, people just associate you with like an allegiance or an alliance, but it's hard still because I'm like, I agree with 80% of what Black Lives Matter is doing. So I may attend for, I'll attend a Black Lives Matter event in Lansing, and our Lansing group is really great, but I kind of have to be careful with, um, I used to have a yard sign in front of my house that was a Black Lives Matter yard sign, and I I took it down, uh, and that was a couple years ago. for different reasons, and, and we can talk about that in another episode. But it's just, I bring that up to, to say there is community organizing, like those sorts of things. You can't actually change laws, and you do it together yeah. with people. But when you do it, uh, you, you, you just have to know that it's not going to be all your evangelical, Bible-believing, Jesus-is-the-only-way sort of people, and that's okay. Uh, but And it's different, I think, if you're a pastor like me, 
because um, people just they'll start as associating you with that's one of our other mailbag questions was about this and we don't have time to get to it because yeah. we're already half an hour in we're gonna we're gonna save the rest of them but that that's a question we'll get into it in a future episode hopefully next episode in the mailbag is uh theologically kind of like how how far is it okay if you don't align you know theologically and i know some people listening be like of course it's okay because you're talking about helping the poor just go help the poor right and that is true right. for sure but when you're also doing ministry to the poor and you're trying to get them into a relationship with jesus while getting them out of poverty while breaking down systemic injustice it can be quite confusing then if their real hope is in jesus and you you're doing that next to an imam, a Muslim imam, um, or yeah. a universalist always are are all always lead to God, right? So there's there's certainly value in in keeping the gospel centralized. Uh, so yeah. we'll talk about that in a, in a future episode. We're kind of on a rabbit trail here, but what, what, basically one one, one minute on that. One yeah. minute on that. This is why churches who um, claim to be gospel centered, churches who claim to uh, believe the bible is infallible and inerrant this is why we should be leading the charge in that's right days. and it's why we don't do anything that's the problem is yeah very exactly. rarely will evangelical churches especially white evangelical churches do anything around the subject of social justice because if if and when they do they they won't even go to those events because they can't have yeah. their name next to the unitarian universalist church on a list and there's a part of that that i respect and understand but that doesn't mean don't do anything <laughs> and that's usually what right. we do we believe the yeah. bible we're the ones that should be leading the charge yeah. so because this is all biblical stuff so yeah yeah, yeah. well it's it, it, it's unfortunate we have Pete, we'll get to your other question in a future episode. We got good, to my man, Pete. good questions from Lauren and good questions from Chris. I promise you we will get to your your questions uh, in our next episode as well. We are going to keep it moving here, keep the train moving, because otherwise we're going to give you another two-hour episode. So, tour de force. Tour de force. That was a, the tour de force. That's right. That was a free audio book is what that was. I mean, that's that's a pretty good deal, you know? I think. Yeah. Today, do you want to start with our uh, pastor friend in Birmingham, or do you want to start with James Cone, Tyler? Let's, let's, let's get to James Cone, okay. uh, Black Liberation Theology, because we might not be able to get to uh, the OG in Birmingham. True, true. All right, Tyler. So James Cone died a few weeks ago, and... Mm -hmm. I will say this, and when you're white and you go to approach racial uh, topics, racial reconciliation issues, it's okay to humbly say, like, I didn't know who James Cohn was. And, you know, I went through seminary, grew up in church. How, I guess I'm wondering how prominent is James Cohn as a name in black church circles but then after reading his stuff, I thought, man, I wish I would have known who James Cohn was. Like, I, I wish I had been exposed to some of this stuff. But that's part, mm -hmm. of the, part of the problem is when you grow up in the white church in a white seminary system, you don't get exposed to people like James Cohn. And that's obviously what a lot right. of his message is even about. But how, 
was how known was his name uh, for you growing up, or you know, when did you first get exposed to him and his teachings? Um, not he wasn't a huge name like you think of uh, really prominent um, black preachers, teachers, and, and um, he more so he, he's a theologian, so he he spent most of his right. time um, as a seminary professor at Union Union which is in New York, I believe. Yeah. Uh, Union Seminary. Yeah. Um, so he, he didn't, he didn't really have a huge prominent voice, uh, in, in the church community cause he was, you know, training, uh, seminarians, but, uh, his writings were very more so in the seventies. I think, uh, his first book came out in da, 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 black power. What was it? Black power, black liberation, black power, black theology. He's got a bunch of uh, them. Yeah. And they're all kind of similar yeah. titled. Yeah. Yeah, was I think like sixty nine or something like that. So um, he he gained prominence right on the heels of the civil rights movement, and so I, I I was kind of listening to some of his. I didn't get turned on to his uh, writings until uh, a few years ago. Um, I went through this, this journey of, and I believe it was the end of two thousand and. 15 i had this epiphany i realized that every author in my in my library was white yeah and most of them were dead i didn't have any uh black theologians authors scholars in my in my library so i said my goal was to read all of 2016 i said i'm gonna read nothing but black theologians and authors and uh so first i had to discover who they were so um i discovered james cone and read some of his stuff uh a few years ago um and it was just interesting uh he is the byproduct of of his era mm-hmm. um black power black theology um that was the that was he's a byproduct of the the black power movement struggle for for a justice king uh he's king meets martin luther uh, martin luther king meets malcolm x yeah uh, and heavy emphasis on culture, heavy emphasis on how um, the blues and the Negro spirituals speak to the black experience in America. Um, so I, I, le- I read a little bit of his book recently, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, and I listened to his mm-hmm. some of his lectures on it. Um, so, yeah, he very interesting, uh, very interesting character. There are some things that, that make me think, hmm. And some things that make me say no, thank you, <laughs> with James Cone, um, but very thought provoking. Yeah, yeah. So I did a crash course on James Cone via YouTube. I had not heard of him, and actually, back to not really a mailbag segment, but a friend of mine, Brett from my church, did did send me a message, uh, sort of like a mailbag. He wanted us to talk about James Cone's death. Uh, or talk about his theology and such after after he died and and yeah. uh, Brett is a white guy and better wider wider red than me obviously because uh, I was like I don't know who this guy is and then so I I haven't been steeply reading his stuff I I did get a stack of his books and I've been looking through them but I thought that watching a couple of his sermons slash lectures on YouTube and then several interviews with him on YouTube were really, really enlightening. And I would encourage listeners to do that, to just type in James Cohn in YouTube and then uh, listen to a few of his talks. And so 
in that I man I a couple of the things he was saying I thought wow this is really awesome and needs to be said and there's a couple of things he said that I thought <laughs> oh yeah I could tell I can tell you why like a lot of people didn't listen to you you know <laughs> uh, and then also some things and I, I and I always wonder this is back to what we said a few weeks ago in fact it came up with Katie's question about Joyce Meyer which is the other side of the of the coin but it's like what do you do when someone is saying something very true theologically, but then there's other mm-hmm. things that are very important that about, let's say, the authority of Scripture or something like that in James Cohn's case, where you would say, oh, man, like, how could I how could I hook my wagon to a theologian who doesn't even believe, you know, in the authority of Scripture or doesn't even believe that, like, the Bible is truth you know that sort of thing and so i thought it'd be helpful mm-hmm. i mean i took a bunch of notes probably more so than is useful but um i want to kind of give some of his really good points <laughs> that i that i picked up on and then um mm-hmm. but basically yeah so his mm-hmm. most his most recent book was the cross and the lynching tree and that one uh, has come out i believe it was like 2011 or something very recent something like that and his point about the cross and the lynching tree is if you look at the history of lynchings in the United States, and so 5,000, over 5,000 black people were lynched, uh, predominantly in the South, but all over the U.S., and... Well, look, can I pause you right there? Can I yeah. pause you right there? 5,000 5, documented. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so if, if, they, if they documented 5,000, that doesn't, that doesn't count the kangaroo court right backyard you know what i'm saying yeah uh so five thousand documented lynchings uh i want to just kind of press that point because if there's five thousand documented man it, it could be it could be maybe even possibly double undocumented yeah um just the oh we thought he did this string him up kind of lynchings right but go right. ahead no, that's a great point. And there's a point with those numbers. This was something from, in Daniel Hill's book, Wide Awake, he, he points out that in the 9-11 tragedy, there were over 3,000 people that were killed in the Twin Towers. And rightfully so, in America, we say, you know, we say, you'll see bumper stickers, never forget. And we, we put a monument there and, and we use it as a rallying cry against terrorism and, and mm-hmm. those sorts of things. And you, co- you compare that to lynchings, which you have 5,000 re- um, minimum number. You know, we have recorded over 5,000 lynchings. And when you talk about lynchings as terrorism in the United States, the, mm-hmm. the, and this is a point James Cohn made in, in his talks, he says often the white, theologians the white church white people they say stop talking about that like that's in the past we need to Mm -hmm. forget that and james cohen made some brilliant points first he says uh look all the victims of lynching are not dead the the victims of lynching have children who are still alive some have Mm -hmm. spouses that are still alive maybe even parents who are still alive relatives, cousins, these are people, let alone the entire black community, to say you took 
five to ten thousand, we know whatever number it was of our of our people from us, and now you're telling us to just forget about it when mm-hmm. we are still the victims of these things of the people that you took from us. And then I'll say this is my last point for this. He also talks about in Germany with the Holocaust for the Germans to get over the Holocaust, they can't just say, let's not talk about it. The Germans have done very intentional things to talk about it, including having Holocaust museums and remembrances, including taking down all swastikas and taking down all Nazi paraphernalia. And anyone who was a Nazi war hero is no longer you know, has a statue up of them, you know, th- those sorts mm-hmm. of things were done. And you, you look at the United States and from perspective of a black person living in the South that has to walk down the street and see Confederate generals, you know, statues yep. uh, mm-hmm. looming over them, let alone the lynching tree all over the place that is just forget about the lynching tree that happened. What, why is that? Why is it that we'll never forget 9-11? Because in that case, the terrorist was someone else. But when it comes to lynching, yep. white people were the terrorists. And so yep. we say, oh, no, no, let's forget about that. Meanwhile, those who are affected by that terror, they can't forget about it. And, and so you, you mm-hmm. see, no wonder there's such a huge divide racially if this is going to be the approach of white people. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that 100%. Um, one of the quotes uh, from the cross and the lynching tree um, Cone said blacks just kind of talking about um, how the church because his point was many of these lynchings happened on church grounds. Yeah. Many of these lynchings were performed by Klansmen and clergymen. Um, and he was just talking about why why we've always been divided as a church in America. Um, Cone said blacks use their faith to survive and resist while whites use their faith to terrorize blacks. Um, so yeah, th- that was, that was, that, that, that's the birth of this black liberation theology, Cone's theology. And then there's others who follow behind him, uh, Jeremiah Wright and others. Um, the, the black, black, Liber- black liberation theology was, was born out of a, 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 a corrective reaction to an American theology and American uh, theological systems that ignored oppression, that ignored the sins against blacks. Like you said, just get over it. You know, that, that, that was the, and um, the, the theology from slavery um, is that, you know, you're less than, you are not created as um, equal as whites. Um, that was taught, you know, mm-hmm. Whitfield referred to, um, blacks in, in, in different ways as, as subhuman. Um, and we know that, that many great men who claim to have the best theology uh, owned human property. So there's been a massive kink in the white evangelical um, armor as far as how blacks are viewed and treated as uh, treated uh, in, in, in America. So this, this, this rise of black liberation theology, Cone and and others was was a was a was a reaction to what, what has been taught um, from the white evangelical church for 250 years before that, 300 right. years rather. Yeah, because uh, this came out in '68. Um, right. a, a pastor, uh, his name is Willie Francesco. He said white evangelical theology um, 
is what slavery was baptized in. Mm. Um, and, and then he, he went on to talk about um, how this, the, that, that all of what blacks have experienced and slavery and segregation and being forced out of white evangelical churches and, the, and um, seminaries, that birthed James Cone. So um, one, one, one thing that, you know, and there, there's a lot of things that I disagree with, many things I disagree with um, as, far, as far as James Cone's theology. I, uh, one of the things that, that he emphasized and he said in a, in a um, lecture that I listened to was, you know, the purpose of the black church um, is to fight against injustice. I don't agree with that. I don't think the, <laughs> the purpose of the black church is for the liberation uh, of oppressed blacks. The purpose of the black church is to um, make disciples of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and even to take to take that back a step, the reason we have a, quote, black church is because historically blacks were not allowed in the white church. So right. th- this wasn't this wasn't something that we said, hey, we want to start our own thing. No, they, they weren't allowed. But um, but yeah, there's there's many things in Cone's theology and in his writings that I would wholesale reject. But um he he was a mirror to the sins of America. He shined a bright light, and not just the America, the country, but specifically the church, specifically how white Christians um, treated um, black Christians. And um, so, yeah, he and, and theology isn't done in a vacuum. You know, the the culture that we live in affects our our, our view on theology. We mm-hmm. say it doesn't. We say, oh no. I just read the Bible. Oh, I just I, I, I just pick up the Bible. Now you come with your own cultural biases, your own cultural uh, prepositions. You, you bring that to your theology. Mm-hmm. This is why you know slavery was allowed for two hundred and fifty right. years right. while there was a church presence in America. This yeah. is why uh, segregation was allowed to uh, thrive in the South and 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 in some parts of the North. Um, to a lesser degree, but segregation happened in our country. This is and and, and so you mean to tell me there was no theology happening there? Right. No, yeah. these seminaries. This was something that um, was found acceptable, and people used uh, their theology as a means to ignore or even. Uh, thrive uh, allow segregation to thrive so yeah um cone didn't just happen you know james cone and jeremiah Wright and these these things didn't just happen they happened because um they were reacting to many 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 years of whites um in the church and um specifically a white uh evangelical theology and school of thought that deemed oppression of brown and black people to be acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great point that you brought out that he makes where for whites and probably, and I think for, for everyone, if you go through seminary, it's never called white theology, right? I mean, can you imagine if you're like, I took systematic theology one, two, and three in seminary. And if it was called systematic white theology, one (laughs) systematic white theology, two systematic white theology, three, we don't think of it as white theology. We think of it as theology, and then we say it's not about the white experience. And James Cone's point is it is about the white experience. And right. what he does as you listen to him is he'll quote 
white theologians from Europe and, and, and those that would be the foundations of our theology. And then he'll quote them being on record saying blacks are inferior to whites, you know, yep. and those sorts of things. And so his point is the, this is the source from which this theology was coming from. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, we will call, we call it like black liberation theology, or even we'd call it, you know, feminist theology or, there's a Latino liberation theology as well. It's like yeah. if it's something outside of white or maybe white male, even uh, we would call we would give it a label. But mm-hmm. if it's if it's just the standard theology, we'll call it theology, not realizing that it's really only the perspective of white men, and yeah. that is a problem. <laughs> that is because that's, that's we the, are biased that's, that's, people. That screams that 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 screams white supremacy. Yeah, and and so that that term white supremacy is a term that you know, like in Daniel Hill's book that I've mentioned a few times, and in James Cone, that word is used to simply talk about like they're not talking about skinheads and they're not talking about Charlottesville and and mm-hmm. the the new Nazi movement. They're talking about a culture where whites have been supreme, and. Yep. That is what our culture has been. Now, that word is so loaded, it's hard to really use that word in any useful way, I think, if mm-hmm. with, when you're trying to actually help white people you know, see these things. And so right. I, li- I like to use different language, but that is what, that is what he's talking about. And, and so, but go ahead. You, white, white, when, I, when I use the word white supremacy, uh, you know, similar to what you just said, I'm not talking about a, a, a um, skinhead or a Nazi. Yeah. I think I think I think white supremacy is so subconscious. Oh yeah, with a lot with a lot of uh, especially I'll say predominantly white men again because women uh, I think understand it a little bit better because they've been discriminated based on their gender. But it's so it's so uh, subconscious. It's just like you have always had the final say. You've always been able to say what is theology. You've always been able to say what uh, what the laws are. You know, you've always been at that place uh, as a white man in the country. You just you don't even realize um, you don't even realize that you you think your way of thinking is supreme mm-hmm. uh, inherently. And it, that, that that's the root of white supremacy. You don't, you don't have to burn a swastika or, or use the N word to be a white supremacist. It's just it's a it's a subconscious way of thinking that white culture white theology or theology by white men is the standard and the only uh means of truth yeah the thing that stood out to me most that would be incorrect about uh james cone's theology Mm -hmm. incorrect in my estimation at least and i think this is where you go back to that idea of so here's there's white evangelical theologians who need and and the white church needs to be exposed to James Cone's teaching and and the good parts of it and there's lots of things we haven't even touched on yet uh one of them being he said he says I read scripture from the bottom up so this idea that he he says that the cross the 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 cross and the lynching tree are the same cultural metaphors and he so he equates Mm -hmm white society with the Roman Empire. And he says mm-hmm. often we read the Bible from the lens of the Roman Empire and we see lynchings 
when we look at lynchings, we, we when whites see those, they don't see the cross, but that's because they're they're experiencing the world as Roman Empire would, as Caesar. Mm-hmm. And he says yeah. when blacks see lynchings, they see the cross. They when the when blacks see Jesus on the cross, they immediately see the lynching tree. And he equates how Jesus was a minority, and how he's living in this uh, oppressed you know culture. And he's he's killed in this dehumanizing way. Uh, the the, cr- yeah. the cross would have been used for power, or for control, I should say, dehumanization. And that's exactly the same way the lynching tree was used. And so he makes some strong statements, but he says you you can't understand the cross unless you see it as a lynching tree. And he's basically making the argument white people can't understand the cross, at not yeah. the same level that a black person can. And yeah. There's Which a, I completely disagree with. Yeah, you know, I, I think when it, I think when it comes to let's say like being saved, I think that's where some of his things he says uh, they they come across as very shocking, right? And I would yeah. disagree that theologically, I mean, to say a white person can't understand the cross. I mean, come on, like yeah, millions of white people have been getting saved by the cross like for forever, right? And that's right. But I do think there's something to be said for like cultural so if if you look at the bible there's very few times that god's people were the people in power so mm-hmm. i think david is one very short period of time and i think abraham was one very short period of time and there's a few other minor minor exceptions but other than that even the kingdom of israel they were typically on the run they were get they were getting beaten down because they were you know in the old covenant there were times when the, the nation was not obedient to God, and therefore they weren't. Mm-hmm. There wasn't peace and these sorts of things. But the entire new. So you have the Exodus. You have people in slavery for four hundred years, right? Obviously, not in power. Um, you you have the exile where they've been kicked out of their land. You know, Daniel, Nehemiah. They're mm-hmm. they're not in power. You have the first century. You have the New Testament where the Jews, they're. They're a Roman province. I mean, the, the Romans allowed them to keep their culture, but they paid taxes to Rome. There's Roman soldiers all over. You mm-hmm. had to give allegiance to Caesar. You know, you look at the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is about Caesar. That's the 666, is Caesar Domitian. Um, I mean, that's that's th- these are people under a— you, let alone how if you became a Christian in the first century, you, oh got, my goodness. you got killed, you got fed to the lions, you got— you got hung on a cross. So my point to that is I think Cone has – he goes way too far to say that a white yeah. person can't understand the cross. I mean, no, we are sinners, total depravity like we talked about last episode. We need the cross. We need grace. We can understand it because the Holy Spirit allows us to. But if I'm only reading the Bible in white affluence and white power, and I've always been the one making the rules, and the rules are always there to help me, and I'm not reading the Bible with someone – like James Cone or just anyone, a person of color. If I'm not reading the Bible with a with a Mexican immigrant, I, I'm going to see Jesus like he's just like me. Whereas yep. a Mexican immigrant or Tyler, some of the stories you've told about you know be, growing up in this white society and getting pulled over by police and and patted down and thrown on a car and you're you're going to be able to see. Let alone someone whose parents died in a lynching, right? When when you right read the narrative of the cross you will relate to jesus 
on a deeper and I would say a, 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 a more true level than, than I would be able to unless I allow myself to be exposed to your perspective and to allow you to teach me. And that's usually what doesn't happen. Do you see what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I completely understand. I, I completely agree. Cone takes it, you know, three steps further than I would um, as far as the the um, similarity between the cross and the lynching tree. Um, I get where he's trying to point people to, but I, I don't draw those same conclusions as James Cone. Um, I, I view James Cone similarly to uh, Dr. King. He was, he was more extreme in his views, but um, there's a lot theologically that I would not agree with um, Dr. King on. Right. Um, Cone, I don't I don't agree with his uh, soteriology. I don't agree where he lands um, as far as uh, his ecclesiology, the purpose of the church. Um, I, I don't I don't land on a lot of those places that he that me and him me and him uh, part. But I, I, I think that he was a voice, um, a, a more so a cultural prophet. Uh, mm. Speaking truth, speaking truth to power. Um, he had the um, the ability to, again, show uh, the church their sins, um, and this is why he was <laughs> blackballed. This, this is why most people never heard of James Cone. Sure, because he because he said things um, that were very shocking. He said things in an abrasive way, um, but there was a lot of truth what he said is, is how uh, as far as how can we as a church ignore um the sins that have uh caused this great separation between blacks and whites and then say you know uh, it'll all be be all right in heaven so the the one of the main things that that i i, I agree with um as far as one of the, the small emphasis on black liberation theology it was this focus on the um, the existential and the um, the life after. Not only um, so a lot of the theology that was taught to blacks by whites was, you know, you're going to suffer on earth, you're not going to have an earthly master on earth, but when you right. get to heaven, right. it'll be okay. This is why all the spirituals were when we all get to heaven, right. sweet swing low, sweet chariot. Your life is going to be a life of uh, inferiority, torment, terror on earth, but it will be worth it in in um, the hereafter. The uh, the the um, eschatological mm-hmm. emphasis, mm-hmm. but but Cone with black libera- black black liberation theology marries the uh, existential and the uh, eschatological. The you know God cares about your life on earth. You are an image bearer. Right. You know his emphasis was on black power and black beauty, and he pointed to how blacks were, uh, um, in some ways, um, did things better than whites. He talked about the, the music and how how creative. And the, the the flair and the majesty and the, some of the pomp and circumstance and mm-hmm. some of the things that make black culture and black people beautiful that 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 we differ from whites. So he he took a lot of what was um, deemed negative and kind of uh, trivialized by uh, whites and said, "No, this is beautiful. Being black is beautiful. The black experience is beautiful. 
You know, look at look, look at the, look look at the rich spirituals and the blues and the rich culture that came from that uh, was birthed from the black experience. So he pointed to the beauty in that and the beauty of uh, blacks being created in the image of God and how that looks different from whites being created in the uh, image of God, but it's still beautiful nonetheless. And um, uh, you know how lives matter, how our lives on earth matter, not just the, uh, the hereafter, but no, um, justice and equality and fair treatment and um, equal housing and equal education matter for blacks on earth as well. So uh, me and him, um, some, his, how he get to those, how he get to those ends, uh, me and him don't see eye to eye on, but I, I agree with his sentiment. Mm-hmm. Um, that God God cares about our life on earth, sure, uh, yeah, and not just just not just the uh, heavenly existence with Him. If that was the case, why? So He does. So He. So you're saying that He only cares about white lives on earth and black and white lives uh, in heaven? You know that, that that's a <laughs> that's a right. flawed that's a flawed argument. Yeah, I'll close with this. For me, the biggest disagreement would be his view of scripture and oh, yeah. he, he said this in that. a couple of yeah. his his sermons and also in uh a black uh, theology of liberation he has a chapter about revelation that i read but in he, he says that the scriptures are human expressions searching for god's truth he mm-hmm. says it's it's not god speaking not literally and you know i i, I want to give him uh I can't think of the phrase here. I want to give him credit and even a benefit of the doubt about about that in a way that I wouldn't give, um, let's say, a white, you know, just kind of liberal theologian. And here's why. Because his point, his reasoning for saying that, he said this in, the, in an interview. He said, people that believe that, so people that believe that the Bible is God speaking in an mm-hmm. He says, people that believe that can kill you in God's name. He says, that was the lynchings. And so mm-hmm. he's coming from an experience where you had white pastors, white theologians, the yeah. white church, who is holding the Bible, and they're saying, this is God's word, in a similar literally. way that I would say that today, literally. And mm-hmm. they're saying, because of what the Bible says, I can kill you. You're inferior and, you know, that's why all these black people Slave, were able to be slaves obey your master. enslaved, right, and those sorts of things. Slaves obey your master. Yeah, they use that out of context. Yeah, and so there's this pendulum, right? And so the, the pendulum is that because white people treated black people that way, James Cohn is like, man, I will never make a truth claim like that about the Bible because I've seen that, you know, that, that type of truth Claim. It, it like destroyed the credibility of the Bible of of making that sort of truth claim. So I kind of bring it back. His view of the Bible, I kind of blame the white oppressors for, mm-hmm. even though I still think his view of the Bible is wrong. Yeah. And so, um, you know, the, I, I think there's just two two sides of the coin there that I think are helpful to take together where I can still say, okay, I can understand that. I can appreciate where he's coming from. I think mm-hmm. we have to do all this theology with a heavy filter. And what I hope is as we do future episodes, we'll get back to talking about the tulip. And, you know, we did total depravity last week and we'll talk about what are the core things in our faith? You know, the resurrection of Christ, the authority of scripture, 
salvation mm-hmm. through Christ alone, where if you have these core things down and you know how to read the Bible better, I think you can read a James Cone and you can say, all right, man, he's speaking some truth to some blind spots in the church, mm-hmm. and, I, and I need to hear this truth. And I can filter out the rest, but I do have caution with just giving a book like this to someone and them reading yeah. it and saying, oh, yeah, the Bible's not God's word, and it's a human expression. Yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. eh, no, 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 no. So that's why this is a little dicey, then, and that's why I think yeah. you got to be – in uh, my church or Tyler's church, or you're wrong. I mean, that's basically what we're saying. Yeah, basically. I agree. <laughs> um, so, and I, I agree with you 100%. I don't, yeah, there's so much. Uh, he went to, went to a very liberal seminary. That tells you everything you need to know. Very similar to Dr. King. Um, uh, again, I, I view these both of these men, I, I, don't, I don't read them and listen to them for their view on theology. They are both cultural prophets to me. Um, so I, 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 I read Cone and for his view on the world, not on his view of, of scripture. Um, so, but yeah, I, I reject that. Uh, I believe, I believe the word, I believe when we pick up the Bible, God is speaking to us through his word is infallible. It's inerrant. It's unfailing. Uh, that's where I land on God's word. So I definitely part with Cone. But again, that's why I said theology is not done in a vacuum. Yeah. Um, it's not it's not done apart from the influences of life and culture and uh, people around us. It, it, it's not done in a vacuum. So, yeah. And he's a product. He's a product of the black power movement. He's a product of his time. Um, you know, and I saw so, so I take a lot of that stuff with a grain of salt. But, yeah, I, I, I don't I don't I, I'm careful who I would recommend put, putting a James Cone book in his in their hand. Uh, but he speaks, he speaks a lot of truth and it's still, I mean, you, 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 you pick up a lot of, you pick up some of his books and listen to his lectures. It could, it could be his take on, um, how, um, the, the, the evangelical church, um, ignores certain things and highlights certain things, mm-hmm. put, they, they, they'll put a, they'll shine a huge, massive spotlight on abortion, but, well, to- totally Im- uh, ignore immigrant rights. Yeah, and, and how immigrants are treated. They'll they'll bash. Uh, they'll shine a massive spotlight on not wanting gay marriage, but totally um, ignore how gay people are treated when they come into our churches and not treated like image bearers and people who need to hear the gospel. So it, 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 it's it the he points out the the wild inconsistencies that the church historically has had. So uh, I appreciate him for that. Um, and, and, and some of the stuff is still true today. Still true today. Um, but yeah, there, there's a lot of places where me and him part. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm thankful for uh, some of his writings. I'm thankful for some of the things he said. Um, it's just, yeah, I, yeah. He said some stuff that I'm like, nah, bro. No bueno. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. No bueno. Well... That wraps up episode three of the Black and White Theology Podcast. Tune in next time. We have a bunch of mail to get to, some good subjects and good topics. We have a video we are going to show you of a a black pastor in Birmingham, Alabama, who is telling black people not to go to white churches, and he is telling telling a white church, don't come into my neighborhood with your 
uh, your, your campus, your site. And so uh, we'll talk about that. Hopefully, we'll be back in a week and a half if Tyler doesn't mess everything up again. I usually do that. That's I said a week thing. and a half. I meant two weeks. But you know what I mean. <laughs> Get your life together. Yeah. I, hey, I, I'm a child of grace. I, would, I don't believe that. Child of God. This is where the show just gets really bad, goes off the rails. <laughs> this is usually the part I edit out like I did last time. And you're a child of something. <laughs> you got anything else you want to add? Um, no. Nothing. All right. Well, you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, subscribe, leave us a, here's what you can do. Hey, we don't want your mail right now because we have too much, but go to iTunes and leave us a, a review. That'd be great. You can leave like a five-star review for me, a one-star review for Tyler. And uh, that that'd be great. Those reviews help get the word out. That's racist. Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, just preach. You need to read some more James Cullen. <laughs> just preach the gospel. I'm just preaching the there gospel. There we go. Just preach Jesus. We are just. You're basically, pre- you're basically saying I'm I'm inherently um, deficient and inferior, like uh, James George Whitfield. Well, I mean, George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards did own slaves, you know, but th- there's that. But they're good theologians. They had good I'm theology. Not gonna comment on that. Out, they had good theology outside of that. I mean, <laughs> outside of thinking black people were, ha- yeah. you know, three fifths of a person. So, yeah, you know, you know, no good, good, good orthodoxy, bad orthopraxy. You should sit under them. It's all good. So, well, they're dead. Well, yeah. it's true. <laughs> they're they're with the Lord. They're they're with the Lord and James Cone. They're all together having a meal now. Oh, not touching that. Oh, come on. <laughs> All right, we'll talk about that in a future episode. <laughs> we'll, we'll decide who's in heaven, which theologians <laughs> are in heaven, Because <laughs> that's the job I want. Uh, no, I'm glad that's not my job. All right, I will uh, see you in heaven, and I'll see you in two weeks. How about that for a tagline? <laughs>